0: We're in the middle of our um, our, our series, Starting Well, as the epigraphic showed us. And um, look, tonight, I'm not going to lie, I've got like 40 verses to preach through. So I'm going to need everyone to listen really quickly uh, so we can get through it all. But um, as we kick off tonight's message, I wonder, can can you remember the last really good story that you heard? Maybe you can look back to a book you've read. Uh, whether it be a, a work of fiction or uh, a history piece or a biography, and, you know, it just had you absolutely enthralled from uh, the very first moment you, you opened that page to the moment you closed it, you just could not put it down. Uh, maybe, maybe it was a song you heard, and, and somehow the, 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 there was just this emotion and this narrative captured in the lyrics, and it had you enthralled from the very first line. Uh, maybe it was a TV show, and, you know, you just couldn't stop watching it, and, and somehow... You're still not really sure how. You managed to watch all three seasons in the matter of a week. Uh, Has anyone else been there before? (laughs) Uh, See, stories are these truly amazing things. Uh, They have this ability, this power to to influence our thoughts, to capture our imaginations, to stir our emotions, and to direct our actions. If we let them, stories can inspire us to these moments of greatness, or, or they can pull us down to the depths of dark despair. Uh, That that C.S. Lewis once said that stories have the ability to sneak past the watchful dragons of our heart and speak directly to our souls. And, And so if the stories we tell and the stories we listen to, if they actually matter, if they actually impact our lives and affect the way we think, then I need to ask you a pretty big question tonight, church. What story do you believe you are living in? What story do you find yourself a character in? Is it the secular world's tale of of chance and meaninglessness and, you know, everything around us is just the result of a cosmic accident, the the roll of a dice, and all we are is bioorganic beings floating around in a space rock? Or or do you believe the tale that, um, you know, God is, is this distant and faraway deity who is either unable or unwilling to involve himself in our lives? Or do you simply just view yourself as the hero of your own story? And nothing outside of that actually matters at all. See, the truth of the matter is we are shaped by the story we believe we are living in. That each and every one of us, we, we are born into a story, we are raised in a story, we live and die within the context of a story. And so it is only within the context of that story that we can actually answer the most important questions of our lives. Who am I? What should I be doing? What is this all here for? See, again, we're in the fourth week of this little mini-series called Starting Well. As together, we've been asking the question, how did the early church start so well? What did they know? What did they understand? What things did they have access to that allowed them to be as effective as they were when they launched? How did the early church go from a group of nobodies on a hill in Jerusalem to a global faith that currently a third of the world professes to? And what we've seen over the last three weeks is that firstly, the early church knew their mission. Uh, that they knew what God had commanded them to do and so they, they acted accordingly. They, they lived out that mission. And in the second week, we saw that they knew the will of God, that they were able to discern the directives and the direction that God had for them as a movement and a people. And then last week, Pastor Pat walked us through the fact that the early church knew the Spirit. That from the day of Pentecost, they had the the access to the power of the Holy Spirit in and through their lives. And, And what I want to show you tonight is that the early church, they knew their story. That they understood their place in the grand arc of God's redemptive work in this world. And that had huge impacts on the sort of lives they lived. All right, so if you've got your Bible with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We'll be kicking off at verse 14. And as I said, we're pretty much going to get through the entirety of the rest of Acts chapter 2. So um, hold on, we'll get there, I promise. Uh, But but while you're getting there, let me just set the context a bit. Uh, So, where we find ourselves, sort of, Pentecost is in full swing. Uh, So, you know, Pentecost is 50 days. So, we're 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, so he's been dead, buried, and raised again on the third day, um, and then he, he went around for 40 days teaching his disciples about what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like, and then he tells them to go and wait in Jerusalem for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so that's what the disciples are doing. They're, they're sitting in a room, they're praying, they're waiting, they're doing what Jesus commanded them, when all of a sudden there's this sound like a mighty rushing wind, there, there's tongues of fire everywhere, there's, there's people speaking in languages not their own, and... Reasonably enough, everyone freaks out a bit, and they sort of, they come together, they congregate to try and work out what in the world is going on. Uh, And and in the midst of that, the very first church service begins, because that's what we're experiencing in that moment, the very first day of church. And let me just say, uh, if you're not into big churches, the first service was pretty busy, uh, we're talking car park full, welcome team swamped, ushers trying to get everyone to their seats. And, you know, there's not enough room in the overflow. Uh, that at least 3,000 people get saved at Pentecost. So we can probably estimate there were a couple thousand more that were present for that first day. And so it's in the midst of that chaos that, that Peter gets up and he starts the very first church service by giving the very first Christian sermon. All right, Verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice, he addressed the crowd and said, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. All right, so I I like myself a good sermon, right? Uh, Which is probably a good thing considering the the line of work I found myself in, but uh, I've actually spent a little bit of time studying and researching the art of preaching, what makes a sermon effective. Um, And and something we always try to do when we're giving a message is we'll start with a hook, uh, that if we can ask a question or if we can get you to engage in with what we're saying, if we can get you to buy in, we at least have your attention for the next five minutes, Uh, which, according to the clock, means I lost about half of you two minutes ago, but we'll we'll keep on pushing through. Uh, but, But that's what Peter's done here, right? Uh, Peter looks around, he looks at all the the craziness of Pentecost, and he's like, okay, let me explain to you what is going on. Let let me tell you what all of this means. And and he's hooking in the audience, he's getting them to engage. Uh, And and then Peter does what any good preacher would, he he tells a really bad joke. Uh, Verse 15, listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, it's only nine in the morning. Peter's like, look... I know it looks like our deacons and our elders are drunk, but it's way too early in the morning, even for them. Give them a little bit more time. Uh, In fact, in the message translation, it actually says they haven't had time to get drunk yet, Uh, (laughs) which I just love because because it gives me biblical permission to uh, make jokes at the other pastor's expense from stage. (laughs) Uh, But look, jokes aside, Peter's addressing a real issue here, right? Uh, He's like, look, everything that's going around here, I can explain it. So he tells this joke, he he lightens the mood a bit. And then again, like any good preacher, he goes straight to Scripture. Um, Okay, and so Peter's about to quote from Scripture. He's going to quote from Joel. uh, He's quoting from Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Um, Okay, so no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters, they will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Right? So, so what Peter's doing here is he turns to the crowd and he says, look, what's happening in this moment, what you're experiencing, it's not just, just one-off random event. You're not experiencing the, this miracle day out of nowhere, what is happening here is actually the fulfillment of Scripture. Uh, That 800 years ago, the prophet uh, prophet Joel prophesied that Pentecost was going to happen. That God was going to pour out his spirit in a new and fresh way. And he was going to do it upon all people, not some people, not, not just the Jewish people, but all who would believe. Male and female, young and old, servant and free. That there was going to be this day in history where God would go from being an external God to being an internal presence in people's lives. And look, quoting scripture, quoting prophecy especially, it does something to the Jewish audience listening to Peter that it doesn't quite do for us. So we need to remember that Peter is speaking to a group of people that really know their scripture. Uh, what would happen is if you were a male raised in a traditional Jewish household at, um, sort of in first century Palestine, what would happen is at the age of five, you would start going to synagogue. And as you would go to synagogue, they'd begin teaching you not only the Hebrew language, but also the Hebrew scriptures. And it would be this process of, of rote memorization such that by the time you were 13 years old, you'd be at this point where it would be expected that you would have memorised entire swaths of the Old Testament. Uh, You would definitely have memorised at least the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, But in all likelihood, you'd probably have memorised most, if not all, of the Old Testament. Uh, And look, I know there are a whole bunch of us that are really proud of the fact that we've memorised our key verses, but I don't think any of us can put our hands up and say we've memorised the entire Old Testament. Uh, But let's see, what that means is the moment Peter starts quoting John, everyone who's listening, they know exactly where he's going with this. They they probably know the verses that lead up to this quotation. They probably know the verses that lead after. And so as as Peter is speaking and he's quoting Scripture, they're making the connections in their head. They're, They're comparing what they see happen before them to what they know from Scripture. That that Peter is pulling in his Jewish audience and he's saying, hey, what is happening in this moment, it is actually part of of the grand story of God's redemptive work. That, That right now you are living out Scripture. You are a part of the story of what God is doing in this world. And you think that would be absolutely amazing to realize that's happening. Unless you actually know the rest of the Scripture that Peter is quoting. Uh, see, See, Peter's audience has probably already jumped to the next section that he's about to quote. So from verse 18, I will show you wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. It's a little bit of a change of pace, right? See, Peter's not just saying hey, guys, you're you're living in redemptive history. You're you're living in part of the story of what God is doing because at the end of the day, we're we're all actually part of that storyline. He says, no, you're coming in at a very specific moment in that story. In fact, you're coming in right at the climax of everything. And see, Peter uses these these two key phrases, uh, the last days and the day of the Lord. And both of these are actually really common Old Testament phrases, uh, especially in uh, prophetic writings. And they, um, so the last day refers to the period of time when the Messiah was going to come, when Jesus was going to come, and he would begin setting up his kingdom. Uh, when things would begin to change and the kingdom of heaven would come and invade the kingdom of earth. And then the day of the Lord refers to a day of judgment. And throughout Scripture, it's used to refer to days of specific judgment. So if God exercises judgment on on a people or a place, that would be a day of the Lord. But in general, it is also used to refer to a final day of judgment, where God was going to come and separate the righteous from the wicked. And again, Peter's Jewish audience, they understand this, right? They know what all this means. They know the language. They know what the last day and the day of the Lord means. And so What what I actually want to quickly do is sort of take a step aside from Peter's sermon and walk us through the the broad brushstrokes of that story. Uh, And and to make that a little bit easier for us and to make Sandy's English teacher heart happy, uh, I'm going to use a plot diagram to map that out. Uh, Who remembers this from English school? A couple of us. Awesome. Um, Okay, so our story begins with exposition. Uh, which is defined as the introduction of all the major characters and the basic situation. And and so for us, that begins in Genesis 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That that our story begins with God, the, the main character, stepping up to create everything. That in the midst of the chaos and the darkness and the disorder of uncreation, God speaks. And as he speaks, as he names things, things start to come into existence. That he says light, and there is light. He says uh, seas, and there are seas. That that God speaks, and as he speaks, all of creation follows with. And then as you read the story, God stops speaking. And in order to complete this beautiful and amazing world he has just fashioned, he creates us. He creates humanity in his image and in his likeness. And he gathers the dust of the earth, and he breathes the breath of life into uh, Adam, which means dirt in Hebrew. And the very first human opens his eyes, and he is face to face with God. that he is in perfect relationship, perfect intimacy with the God who made him. And God calls that very good. See the exposition of our story. The start of our story is God making humanity in this perfect relationship with Him, this perfect access to Him, that that we were created for good, and we were created for God. And everything is amazing and beautiful and awesome for like one page in the Bible. Um, you, you see, we we get to the conflict pretty quickly in, in the narrative of things that. Uh, Again, as your English teacher would define it, uh, the conflict is the struggle between forces that drives the action of the story. And for us, the, the conflict is that we were corrupted by evil. You see, Adam and Eve weren't really keen on this whole idea of ruling and reigning with God, the way that God wanted them to do. Uh, they, They wanted to do things their own way, to rule and reign under their own wisdom, that instead of being with God, instead of partnering with God, they wanted to be like God. And so what happens is they sort of put their hand up to God and say, no, God, we've got this, we're going to do it our own way. And so sin enters the world. And because Adam and Eve had been given authority over this world, as they fall, as we fall, all of creation falls with us. And all of a sudden, this beautiful and amazing creation is is, is warped, it's twisted, it's just it's wrong. And and there's death and there's pain and there's misery and there's suffering and there's disease and there's earthquakes and there's global pandemics that the world just starts to fall apart. And most heartbreakingly of all, this perfect relationship with God is lost. That Adam and Eve are forced out of the garden and they are forced out of God's presence. And so then we move on to the the rising action or the rising tension, which, uh, to be honest, is pretty much the entirety of the remainder of the Old Testament. It's the portion of the story where conflict begins to increase. See, what starts off as the sin of Adam and Eve disobeying God, the next generation evolves itself into Cain murdering Abel out of jealousy. And then you just go a couple generations down the line, and and all of a sudden, things are just out of control, and you've got people like Lamech who start boasting that they're going to murder hundreds of people if all they do is get insulted. That the sin of Adam and Eve, it starts to seep down into the soil of our hearts and the soil of this world. And the people of God who were made for this relationship with God drift further and further away from it. And so what God does is, is he steps into the picture and he's like, look, if you actually want to have a relationship with me, if you want for me to be able to come into your presence, then this is what you need to do. This is the sort of life you need to live. And so what God does is he gives them 613 rules, the, the laws of the Old Testament. And all that does is make their sins so much more evident. That time and time and time again, despite having exact instructions from God, they fall short. And and so all the laws really do is they act as this mirror that, that show the people of God, that show us that we can never meet God's standards. That by ourselves, we can never enter into his presence because we are all broken and sinful people. That whether by nature or nurture, we are all sinners. And so what happens as you follow along the story that all of a sudden these prophets start showing up. And these prophets come along and, and they start telling about this period that was going to come at, called the end of days. And in the end of days, God was going to bring judgment. He was going to come and he was, there was going to be judgment for all the sin and the brokenness in this world. But besides that, the prophets spoke of this day where God was going to come and there was going to be reconciliation. There was going to be atonement. There was going to be Redemption that they promised that this day was coming where God was going to make all the wrong things right, that sin would be paid for, that the punishment would be, would be meted out, but beyond that, things would be set right again and we would return to the way things were supposed to be. That this period of rising action is a season of waiting for the promises of God. And so that there is pretty much the story of redemptive history from Genesis through to Pentecost. <clears throat> and again, we see the story and most of the people listening to Peter preaching at the time, they they know what this looks like, that they have the the scriptures memorized, they understand the story they are living in. And so when Peter starts talking about things like the end of days and the day of the Lord, they know where they are fitting in, they know the moment of climax that they are coming into. And I think they're probably afraid, (laughs) Because they, they know, they know this story means that they're all sinners who need a Savior. They, they know this story means they, they don't have what it takes to come into this relationship with God. And so what, what Peter does is he finishes the rest of his quotation. And he gives them the answer they need to hear. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That the way we we get past that season of judgment and into that season of redemption and restoration is by calling on the name of the Lord. And and then as you're following through Peter's sermon, it sort of feels like he takes a radical change of direction. Because he stops quoting scripture, he stops looking at this day of judgment, he's like, okay, now let me talk to you about Jesus he says, now that I've brought you into the stark reality of where we sit into the story, let me explain Jesus to you. Because see, church, the truth of the matter is we can't actually understand the story of redemption unless we first understand Jesus' story. And so Peter continues from verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. So Peter's like, we need to understand Jesus' story. We need to know how it fits into redemptive history. And so he breaks Jesus' story up into three parts, his life, his death, and his resurrection. That firstly, he starts by Jesus' life, that uh, Jesus of Nazareth was a man, that, that Jesus Christ was fully human, that he came and he lived a fully human life, that he was a 100% man. And yet, at the same time, he was 100% God, that his life was a life marked by miracles, by wonders, and signs. And the word there for miracles is dunamis, which means works of power. Uh, the word for wonders is teras, which means things that cause marvel or awe. And then signs is semion, which means something that points towards something else. In other words, every miracle Jesus performed every moment of authority he exercised, every act of his life, it actually pointed towards something greater. It pointed first and foremost to God and it pointed towards redemption. And then what Peter does is he moves into the death of Jesus. uh, That he says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death. That the theological term for this is the humiliation of Christ that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be called the righteousness of God. That Jesus came and he died for us. Despite the fact that he lived a perfect life, despite the fact that he had done nothing wrong at all, he died the most shameful, painful, and humiliating death the world has ever known. Uh, So much so that the word we have for excruciating, something we used to describe immense pain and suffering, it actually comes from the Latin words ex and crucio which means from the base of the cross. That Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, came and he humbled himself by taking upon himself a human form and dying a sinner's death on the cross. And then finally, Peter talks into the resurrection of Christ. That God raised him from the dead. He freed him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold. That, That for Jesus, death was not the end of his part in the story. That he went down into the grave, he came out with the keys of death and Hades in his hand, that he robbed the grave of all its power over us. And see, what Jesus is doing in that moment is he is ushering in the kingdom of heaven. That time and time again throughout Jesus' ministry, he would say, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. And as Jesus rose from the grave, he ushered in that new season. And, church, that is the story of Jesus. That Jesus lived a perfect life, a life we could never hope of living, the life we were supposed to live. And despite that, he died a sinner's death on the cross, a death that we should have deserved with our brokenness and our transgressions. And then they put him in a tomb, and then three days later, he walked out. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father until the day he will come back and enter into the day of the Lord and judge the righteous from the wicked. That is the the, the story we need to understand. And see, what what Peter is saying when when he quotes Joel and he puts us into the context and, and then he says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What he is saying is anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. That if you understand the story of Jesus, if if you believe in it, if you put your weight in it, if you trust in it, you're not going to enter into the season of of judgment and punishment, but into a season of redemption and restoration with Christ. That the early church, they knew their story, church. That they didn't believe they were were in the season of waiting. They, They didn't believe they were waiting for the promise anymore. That they believed they were in the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven that they were living in the last days. They were living in the time when the Messiah had come and had begun setting up his kingdom. And church, that is true for us today as well. That that we are still living in that season of redemptive history, that that Christ has come, he has ushered in the new heaven, the new kingdom, and and we are part of it today. That that we are called to be a kingdom of priests, that, that we are living in the truth of the fact that God has come and ushered in a new season in history. But we still need to know how we fit in to the rest of that story. And and, and so what what Peter does then is he he stops and he gives a bit of scriptural evidence for what he's saying. And I'm sort of going to skim through the next 10 verses for the sake of time. But to summarize his argument, he sort of pulls from the Psalms and he says, look, David prophesied that Jesus was going to die and be resurrected. And uh, we know the Psalm is about Jesus and not David because David didn't come from the grave. Um, And so, verse 25, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made, made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Ah, so that, that all there is a quote from the Psalms, that, that's a, a Psalm of David, uh, and then Peter's going to argue why this is about Jesus. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch, patriarch David died and he was buried. His tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. That God raised Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. So his his, his argument, again, is basically that that Psalm is about Jesus, not about David. Therefore, Jesus was raised to life, and Jesus is the Messiah. Um, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at the right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Awesome. As I said, it's not the focus of tonight, so I'm just sort of skimming through that section. But we've got through, we've we've read the verses, so uh, we're still working our way through the book of Acts. Um, But yeah, what I want to focus on is actually our place in the story. Uh, And and again, I, I know there's been a lot of information tonight that I've somehow managed to I uh, get not only through like 30 verses of Acts, but all of Genesis through to uh, the end of the Old Testament. But again, the stories we believe actually matter, uh, especially the story we, we are living in. And that is the story we are living in. We are part of redemptive history. And so, again, to finish it off, we need to know our, our role in the story. Verse 36 Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Uh, That that is our place in the story. See, church, we're not the heroes. We're not secondary characters in the story. We're not bystanders. We are actually the villains. That our role in the story is that we are actually the ones who nailed Jesus to the cross. And look, I know that none of us were actually there 2,000 years ago. We weren't the ones physically with the nail and the hammer in our hands. But church, it is our sin, our brokenness that nailed Jesus to the cross, just as much as if we had been the ones with the hammer. That C.J. Mahaney wrote that, unless you see yourself standing there with a shrieking crowd, full of hostility and hatred for the holy and innocent Lamb of God, you don't really understand the nature and depth of your sin nor the necessity of the cross. And John R.W. Scott says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. See, the truth of the matter is the gospel is the only story where the hero dies for the villain. That Jesus willingly went to the cross to pay for our sins. He died for our broken, brokenness, for our transgressions. That, that on the cross, Jesus bore the full weight of our sins. He bore the punishment and wrath and separation from God that only our brokenness could ever have deserved. that is the story we are living in. We live in the story of a God who created a perfect world, and yet we broke it with sin. And yet God did not leave us to that place. He did not reject us or turn His face away from us. God still wanted a personal relationship with us, and so He sent His Son to die for us. He sent his son so that we could have a relationship with him. That despite our rejection of God, Christ came for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because that is the story we are living in. And when we actually understand that, when we grasp the full depth of our place in redemptive history, we understand just how much we need God. That apart from him, we have no good. That that we're not these bad people that someone needs to try harder. We we are sinners who need a savior. And and when you understand that, it changes how you live your life. And and look, I I know there's been some pretty harsh statements in there. And and I don't say that to bring condemnation because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it, it is the truth. And we're told that the crowd in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. That the response of the crowd listening to the sermon of Peter, it it brought them to tears. It it broke their heart to to understand that they had crucified the Messiah. And in the same ways, it, it should leave us in tears, church. And like the crowd, it should lead us to ask the same question that they asked. Verse 37, And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That their response to the question is, well, what do we do about this? And to be honest, that is the most important question you will ever ask. Uh, to, to paraphrase it a bit and quote from Matthew instead, uh, at, at the, the crucifixion of Jesus, they ask, what will you do with this man called Jesus. How will you respond to his story? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as promises for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, saying, save yourselves, from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And so, church, as we finish this off, and and the band can start coming up, again, the stories we believe, they matter. And that's true when you're talking about the the books we read and and the TV shows we watch and, and the music we listen to, but it is so much more so for the stories we believe we are living in. <clears throat> but again, if you believe you are, you are living this, uh, in this story where everything is chance and randomness and there's, there's no purpose to life, then that is the sort of life you will live, that there is no meaning if that is the story you follow. If you believe the story that, that God is a distant and far off God who wants nothing to do with us, then again, what meaning is there? But if you believe the story of a God who made you, who knows you, who longs to have a personal relationship with you, so much so that he came and he died for you. And that changes your life, church. And I'm asking you, no, like Peter, I am pleading with you, believe the story. Let it change your life. Let it be the story that you know you are living in. And I suppose more importantly, live a life that reflects that truth. Live a life that reflects the truth that that we are all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Because you see, that that plot diagram, it doesn't finish with the climax. It finishes with a resolution. And if we'll let it, it finishes with us being restored in Christ. See, what happens in in the the last day or the the day of the Lord is is Jesus comes back. Mm -hmm. And what's going to happen is everyone's going to give an account of the lives they have lived. And at the end of the day, we're all going to be found wanting. Believer and non-believer alike. And what's going to happen in that moment is we're going to be found wanting and then Jesus is going to come up and he's going to pull up a book. It's called The Lamb's Book of Life. And in that book is the name of everyone who has given their lives to Jesus. And if your name is found in that book, you're going to enter into Eternity with Christ, that we will be restored in Christ, and we will be given a new heavens and a new earth, and new physical uh, perfected and glorified bodies, and we will spend eternity worshiping God and and doing what God had always intended for us to do, ruling and reigning over this world that He had created. That all that only happens if we accept the story, if we believe in it, if we put our faith in Jesus. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So, how will you respond to the story, church? And look, if you're here tonight and you've never given your life to Jesus, then your response is really easy. Like Peter says, you repent and you get baptized. And that word repent, it simply means to turn around. It's not this grand, like uh, theological word. It literally means to change direction. That you stop doing what you're doing. You stop walking down the path you are walking in. And you say, I'm going to leave that all behind. I'm going to leave behind my shame and my guilt and my sin. And I'm going to turn to a better way. I'm going to turn to Jesus. (sighs) That you just say, Jesus, I'm like, I can't do this. I need you, I leave it behind, and I turn to you. And the way the Bible asks us to to represent that decision is by being baptized. And look again, baptism isn't this magical thing. It's not like we are saved through the act of baptism. We don't get some sort of magical benefit by being baptized that uh, we know the thief on the cross, he definitely gets into heaven, because Jesus told him that. Um, And he didn't jump off the cross and get baptized but we are commanded to do it. And it really is this, this outward symbol, this outward representation of what Jesus is doing in our hearts. That we go into the water and when we leave behind our sin and our shame and our brokenness, we, we turn away from our past self. And as we come up out of the water, we're symbolizing the fact that we are in new life, that we are being born again, that we are in Christ Jesus. That is an outward expression of an inward working of the heart. And so look, tonight in faith, I filled the baptism pool. Um, No one's put their hand up and said they're getting baptized tonight, but I I truly believe that there are people in this room that have never made that decision. They have never decided that they want to call Jesus their Lord. And so tonight, if you are here for the very first time, I'm not going to get you to put your hand up or anything like that. I'm just going to say the invitation is open for you to declare Jesus as your Lord and repent and be baptized. And and all I would just say is while the worship music is playing, while, while we're singing this song and the lights have just come forward. We, we've got towels, we've got spare shirts. You don't really have that as an excuse and I'll jump in the water with you and, and you'll be baptized and enter into the community. And as you come up, we're all gonna roar in in, in adoration of what God has done in your life. But look, I, I also think there's a second invitation tonight. Because again, I think there's a whole bunch of people in this room that you, you'd call yourself believers and, and you 100% are, oh, I'm not questioning your, your salvation, but you've never been water baptized as an adult. And so the invitation is open for you as well tonight. That if you are here and you call Jesus your Lord and you want to make that public declaration of faith, again, I would just invite you to come forward during the worship and just be baptized. And again, it, it just, it, it for no other reason than the fact that Jesus commanded us to. So look, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pray and we're gonna close this off and then um, we're, gonna, we're gonna enter into a time of worship and that space is gonna be open down here. So would you bow your heads with me? Lord, I I thank you, Lord, that that all of redemptive history is in your hands. There's never been a moment that you've been surprised. There's never been a moment where you've been taken off guard, that you know the end from the beginning. You you know exactly what is going to happen. And Lord, it's your story, that, that history is his story. And so God, I just pray that you would just do something in our hearts that would make us aware of our place in that. That you would open our eyes to the ways you are working through our lives and the lives of those that have come before and those that have come again. And Lord, that you would lead us to live a life that reflects the truth of the story we're living in. And Lord, for those that are here tonight and and their heart is, they're they're wrestling right now and they're, they're holding onto the chairs because they don't want to get up, Lord, would you just convict them? Lord, would they just come up without any understanding of what is happening, almost as if their feet are moving by themselves, and would they find themselves in their pool? Because, Lord, you irresistibly pull people onto yourself. Lord, that right now, tonight, eternities would be changed, that stories would be changed because of what you are doing in people's lives. So Lord, we love you and we praise you and we glorify you. In your name, amen. Amen.